decoded. Welcome to this episode of the Founder Tech Decoded podcast. I'm delighted on this episode to be talking to Tim Whiston, who's had essentially over a 20 year founder's journey from um, most recently setting up Ismi & Co in 2021 during the pandemic, and then circling all the way back to running a FTSE 250 company in the early 2000s, and in the middle being an exited founder in 2016. So we're gonna hear Tim kind of connect those dots as to how uh, how that 20 year journey sort of formed and was informed by. Um, and it's a, it's a real pleasure to be talking to someone who's had kind of that breadth of scope um, operating in different, I guess, founder and entrepreneurial and company-driven circles, including, as, as we said, recently launching his own uh, startup right in the middle of tough times. So, Tim, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Dan, it's a pleasure to be here. Really excited to, to talk about it. So, um, do you want to connect those dots for us? Do you want to go back to the early 2000s, the, the, the FTSE 250 company? You know, can you, can you kind of, you know, yeah, connect the arc of that journey, if, it, if, if you will? Yeah, of course. So I originally trained as a chartered accountant, um, having come out of university, not really knowing what I wanted to do, but knowing that I had an interest in business. Um, and so I kind of joined the, um, uh, I suppose, the uh, the herd um, being scooped up into chartered accountancy training with one of the big, big four accountancy firms. I think it was big six back then. That shows my age, doesn't it? Um, and um so I, I trained as an accountant and then moved into the management consultancy practice within that business, which was which was great. I mean, I, I realized I was I was never born to audit. It wasn't going to be my kind of my career choice. Um, and I thought the management consultancy route would be a, you know, another interesting um, avenue to explore, which I did. Um, and again, that was great in terms of you know, seeing lots of different businesses, albeit as you know, as an analyst stroke observer, you weren't really kind of involved in the cut and thrust of the day-to-day operations. Um, and then I reached the point where I decided it was time to get a proper job. Um, I've had enough time really, you know, traveling around, living in hotels and doing these consulting projects for kind of big, big multinationals. And so I applied to join um, a new startup business, which was, um, was actually part of KPMG at the time, um, and it was a software product business which didn't really fit within their kind of corporate strategy. And so the partners who'd set that business unit up had identified that there was an opportunity to buy it out, and they they needed to hire a finance director. So I applied for the job and, and got the job, and became the, the kind of the final member of the of the founding team, if you like. And it was all around. Um, or the specific strategy was to to buy that business out of KPMG. So we we set about putting together a, a, an MBO transaction, um, which we completed in uh, 1998. Um, we actually did the uh, did the buyout, um, and then set out set off on a you know very kind of clearly designed path to to grow the business organically and also to to grow by way of acquisition. So. I suppose back in those days, looking back in a dim and distantness of time, um, there was a fairly, fairly kind of conventional way of doing things and fairly conventional way of approaching funders. 
um, we had the added benefit because of the, the connection with the, the KPMG business that there were existing connections into you know, the venture capital community um, via the kind of corporate finance arm. So we were introduced and we, we kind of ran a beauty parade of potential investors. Can I just ask um, you a question then? Because it's course, really interesting. Yeah. Like we haven't, I think, ever gone that back that far in the kind of venture landscape. I was around it in that time. Were you try, going to like the first Tuesday meetings and all that? Was it around where the, where the end? Because what's interesting for, I think, people to listen to, particularly sort of people who are, you know, have started their startup journey later, you know, in 2010s, is that that world was very, very different, right, back then. It was, it was, it was even more sort of who you know and, it was very, you know, the early formations of meetups. But can you give us a flavour of that, what that was like back then, if you can remember? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was, it was very different. Um, I'm not sure it was, it was better, um, but it was certainly different. But I suppose, I suppose the biggest difference was, that, you know, the options were you know, more limited. So there were kind of established, you know, uh, venture capital um, firms. Um, that you could talk to, and they were relatively, compared to you know nowadays, relatively small in number. So there were there were obvious candidates who you'd speak to, and you're right, it was it was a bit of a kind of you know an old school kind of club, and you know, relationships were key. Um, introductions were really important. Um, I'm not sure what it would be like or what it was like for people who didn't have those relationships, because obviously we didn't experience that. But I imagine it was even tougher than it is today. Um, as I say, we had the benefit of you know having those relationships that would open the door to a conversation, and then the process was probably as you'd expect. You know, it was you know getting to understand the proposition and the business and due diligence and negotiation of terms and so on. So that bit probably not too dissimilar um, in in some respects, but the original, I suppose, kind of origination, um, you know. It felt to me, certainly, you know, from, from my experience, that it was it was very relationship led at that point. So how long did that process take when you decided to sort of buy a startup out of KPMG, which is interesting in itself to kind of like that that might I don't think that happens a lot, or certainly doesn't feel like it happens as much when people identify something within a structure and then kind of carve a startup out. How long did that take for you to sort of be autonomous, uh, your team with that startup? Yeah, I mean, it took us it took us a year, you know, from start to finish, um, and probably the, the you know the longest the longest lead time element was putting in place you know the administrative um, um, components that we needed to run the business on a standalone basis because you know, it wasn't the deal um, origination and the, and the and the deal completion that took the you know the the longest time. It was being part of a bigger organisation. You know, they looked after all the IT. Um, for us they looked after all the hr and the finance and what have you so we had to set up all of the administrative processes um kind of in flight you know we didn't do it as the business was growing we had a business which was it was about 50 people um at that point so it was you know a, dec- a decent enough size um, but it had never operated independently you know so we had to set up everything from scratch all the hr finance insurance banking everything um for an existing business. So that, that's what took the longest time for us. The actual deal was relatively quick, I remember. Um, you know, we moved in a matter of probably months, but it felt like weeks from candidate funders 
to you know who'd expressed an interest in the deal to a short list of I think it was two to then actually completing the deal with Lloyd's Development Capital. And then the process from there within a couple of years to be listed. How how did that happen? So so the deal was always um, the MBO was always predicated on you know we would then seek a you know stock exchange listing. Um, so it was it was in contemplation you know from from day one, um, and it was important to us because for, for two reasons really, one was to fund the acquisitive growth that we'd identified as you know a key key leg of the strategy, and then the other was you know for profile and brand, and we had to work quite hard in the early days to 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 move away from you know, being seen as part of KPMG, which is you know, has has all the kind of positive attributes associated with it. But for a software business, we we needed to break away from you know, being seen as a professional services business that you know sometimes viewed as you know um, you're looking to command a premium. Um, we wanted to be seen as you know a cost effective standalone software um, um, entity. So you know, it was important to kind of establish that break and listing. You know, would be another way to give us you know a boost in terms of our profile and you know our, our market was at that point primarily the uk um and so it you know it helped in, in that context so we're, so we started you know, always with the intention we were going to list the listing process takes longer you know it's much more intensive and exhaustive um in terms of preparation um you know finding the right sponsor um to 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 work with who would then kind of take you through the process and then going through all of the diligence that's then required to actually you know qualify to to list on the uh, on the stock market and it was a full a full listing um, from the off so it took us two to three years really to kind of prepare the business and then to complete the uh, the listing the initial offer and what was that like um, you know running a listed business well, well, you know, sort of I, I imagine sort of relatively early in your career you know what was that like yeah, I mean, I was finance director at this time when we when we listed, yeah. um, and I was I was in my early early thirties. Um, so, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, you know, at, at the time it was it was fascinating because it's you know it's it's a challenge in terms of, and it, and it's something new, and it was new to you know both myself. I was the youngest member of the kind of exec team. Yeah. Um, but it was also new to 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 the other guys. You know, the the chairman. Um, who had been deputy senior partner of KPMG UK, yeah, so kind of a big hitter, you know, a big, big beast. Um, but it was the first time he'd, you know, he'd kind of been in that environment in the, in the listed world. So, you know, very, very different um, from an FD's perspective. Very time consuming. You know, the the actual effort required to establish a business in that forum and then to service, you know, the the investor information requirements um, and demands is and, and the analysts and all the people who kind of you know living in amongst that you know that environment is 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 time consuming and you know and it means that you have to sacrifice an element of your time that or otherwise you would be able to kind of deploy within the business so it is you know it's no it's a significant undertaking you know it's no mean feat to kind of go through that process and uh but at the time, it's exciting. You know, it's something you've not done before. Do you think, having had that experience so early on, 
uh, or relatively early on. I know you weren't, you know, you're, even in your early 30s, as you said, you're the youngest member of the team. Do you think that's given you a different perspective as a founder and, and sort of startup culture when you sort of, when you mingle in, in, in worlds today of people who haven't had that sort of financial rigor and discipline or to think like that? Do you feel, do you feel like that experience still resonates and kind of informs the way you think about financing the growth of a startup? I think, I think the overall journey and obviously the things you learn, the things you get right, the things you get wrong along the way inform, you know, everything you do today um, or everything I do today. And I think in that respect, yeah, it's been, it's been really helpful. Um, I think there are some elements which are very specific, you know, to you know, being a finance director or CEO, which I later stepped up and you know, became the CEO as the business got, got bigger still. Um, and we we moved up into the FTSE 250 um, towards the end of my my time with the business. Um, there are elements which are very specific to that environment, but then there are I think you meant use the word disciplines. I think there are some basic disciplines which are good, um, you know, and stand you in good stead in terms of being able to you know define and um, communicate a strategy that you have for the business to an investor audience that may or may not know very much about, you know, the industry that you operate in. So I think in that respect, it's, it's helpful, you know, and, and there's things now which I can draw on, uh, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, how, how I described the, the Ismi and Co business. And there's definitely, there are definitely things which, you know, put me in good stead in terms of discussions with, you know, um, whether that's, you have customer organisations, other third parties, other stakeholders, customers or or funders um, that you need to to be able to do, you know, running a successful business and particularly, you know, a business that's moving quite quickly and growing to a, you know, a substantial, substantial size. I haven't asked you this um, when we spoke before, but do you, as uh, I know we're going to get onto the X here, but do you operate as an angel, active angel investor? Uh, you know, therefore, look, I, I, the reason I ask is, are you looking at businesses and therefore sort of um, sort of putting this kind of financial lens or rigor onto them that maybe a younger founder doesn't have? Is that is that is that a conversation that you're involved in or, or not? I did, yeah. So, yeah, uh, having having left the, the enterprise software business, the listed business, I then got involved in a small manufacturing business, which we, <clears throat> excuse me, we then grew. Um, and grew very specific with a very specific obje- objective of, of a trade sale exit, which we completed, as you mentioned in the intro, um, in 2016. So off the back of that, I then find myself in a position where you know I had some time to then look at you know, what else I might do with my you know with my career. And actually, uh, you know, at that point, I got did get involved in, in an angel um, group. Which was affiliated with one of the, or it was a spin out or an extension of one of the corporate finance um, firms that I knew, and so yes, I, you know, I have I have been an angel investor. I'm still an angel investor. I'm still invested in the business. Um, so kind of sitting on the other side of the fence was was interesting, you know, and receiving pitches, <coughs> and you know, um, being involved in you know appraising investment opportunities you know on a personal basis not on a corporate basis yeah i think that was helpful um and it helps me i think you know when i now 
you know, talk to individuals who are interested in investing in uh, in ISME and Kay. So let's let's conclude the, the story from from the exit to you setting up mid pandemic ISME and Co. So what what made you want to sort of get back in, you know, the, the saddle as it were, and but with a startup essentially starting from scratch and building that. Do you want to just talk about the logic of that journey and how you've experienced that? Yeah, sure. So so after the exit, I did a little bit, spent a little bit of time indulging a passion, which was um, some, some property development. Um, but I was always, at that point in kind of 2016, minded that I'd get involved in another business. I, I really, my, my passion was, um, from a business perspective, was with smaller businesses. You know, I really enjoyed the kind of, you know, the early stage um, dynamics. You know, getting involved in something early that had real potential. So I looked at different opportunities, spoke to a number of different businesses, and for various reasons, there was nothing really kind of worked for, for me. Um, and so, fast forward a little bit, we then we then kind of ran into the pandemic, and at that point, so we're thinking kind of early 20 uh, sorry late 2020 early 21 um i thought about possibly making the move into a portfolio career you know looking at taking on some non-exec roles some business advisory um, roles um and so i joined a, um, a network which was virtual all virtual at that time which was for businesses looking for non-exec directors or individuals who are kind of moving in those circles and what happened was I actually met my co-founder now, Will, Will Morn, um, on one of these networking events. And he, he was there for a similar purpose. So he already had a, um, as a trustee of a charity and he was looking, you know, opportunities to, to take on other NED type roles. And Will and I had kind of met on one of these sessions and then agreed to have a follow-up and we were, we were chatting afterwards. And we shared the observation about how many people on those calls were actually the owners and managers of small businesses who weren't there because they had a particular interest in hiring a non-exec director or offering those services themselves. They were there simply looking to promote themselves and their business <coughs> excuse me, to other businesses. And they were there for business development purposes, cold prospecting in this forum where they perceived, you know, there would be a, you know, a, a decent target audience for them to, you know, to talk to, and that that kind of sparked a, an idea in our mind about surely there must be something out there that's you know, better than this kind of cold pro- prospecting, you know, and these people were paying three to five hundred pounds a year just to just to kind of have a punt on some of these these networking calls, so we started investigating it, identified that. We didn't think there was anything really comprehensive out there. And in particular, that there wasn't anything which um, echoed what we're all now familiar with and what we all expect and demand within you know, consumer settings you know, as, as individuals, where there's ease and utility of buying you know, services and products um, online. And we saw no good reason why or the hypothesis was there was no good reason why this shouldn't be made available for the you know, for the business services sector and in particular for small and medium-sized businesses and so we set about analyzing the market um, 
we bootstrapped in the early early phase. So we spent around six six months um, running um, user group workshops of owners and managers of, of UK SMEs, talking to them about, you know, on the one hand, the buyers, how did they go about finding the external help and the information, you know, in the first instance, the information to confirm what they think their need is, to then, once they're confident that they know what they need or think they know what they need, they can then reach out to, you know, to you know, appropriate providers. You know, and that's a challenge. You go to your existing network, and then once once you've exhausted that, if, if nobody can help you from within that, um, you know many people hit Google, and you know that's dangerous. So we thought from the buyer side, there's there's benefit in you know making more information and, and uh, curating a, a directory of vetted suppliers um, who potential users can then come and consume. And on the other side, you know, for the providers themselves, the, the providers of advice, service, or resource, whether that's HR or finance or all the things that you need to, you know, to run your business. And typically, as a small business, you don't have in-house. And if you do, it's only you know to a limited extent until you reach a certain size. <coughs> they, you know, they struggle to promote themselves. They struggle to be seen because the the target audience that they're trying to. Um, connect with is is vast and, and fragmented and you know the challenge is how, how do you how do you get in front of those people and how do you get in front of them in a way that's not cold prospecting how do you get in front of people who are well informed and motivated and actually in the market to buy and so the idea for isn't and co was born you know a digital marketplace where we bring those elements together and we wrap it in a community as well so that you know people can engage with um, like-minded business leaders, people like themselves that they can ask questions of or share experiences with or ask for recommendations. Um, so that's that's kind of where the idea was born. Um, and I don't hear you know, similar in some respects to you know, the challenge we face as founders. You know, how do we engage with such a large, fragmented and dispersed investor community? You know, and in a way that you know, we're we're building Disney and Co to put some tech in in here in the middle of that um, that opportunity. You know the founder the founder tech that you talk about, Dan, is you know we're kindred spirits because okay the market's different, but you know I think there's a huge opportunity to use tech in a in a sector that has been it's a, it's a digital desert. Yeah. Um... Now, now we've sort of completed the, the story today. Let, let's let's kind of examine it through the lens of the switch deck because I think there's loads there that we could talk about. Um, I, I'll dot around it. Um, for anybody listening, we'll put it in the show notes so they can actually kind of see what we're talking about. Um, this is this is a deck that we put together provocatively, I guess slightly slightly provocatively titled the switch deck, but it contains the key shifts in early stage venture that could help further align the exceptional founders in early stage investors so it's the synthesis of everything from the Tech decoded podcast today um and what we try and do is once we've heard the, the founder's journey um like tim's just outlined in a lot of detail then kind of overlay that onto the deck and see if there are parallels or even challenges or pushbacks or other things we haven't thought about um so it sort of so it comes a kind of a an ongoing discussion through through the podcast um 
let's let's start with the the, the, the first one. Do you have have you raised any capital for Ismi and Kai? Maybe it's a good good question to ask. And if so, where from? Yeah, we we did. Um, so we 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 bootstrapped bootstrapped the initial phase, the the early months, and then we raised um, 150k back in September 21, um, which was from it wasn't quite family and friends, but it was you know it's contacts and people we already knew, um, and that was under you know SKS. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you, do you think? I mean, this is kind of built on the question said earlier, but do you th- do you think venture itself is at a crossroads? Like, do you do you do you sense that you know what, what there, there's this idea that actually you know we were talking about twenty years ago. Actually, if you look at venture, a lot of the way it operates hasn't really innovated itself. You know, venture, venture goes into all other markets and looks for inefficiency and opportunities to disrupt. And we'll start with a clean piece of paper, and you know, all and, and how do you scale that scale those solutions? But when it looks at itself, it's quite a legacy, well, a very legacy driven with a lot of sort of outdate um, systems. Do you, do you think having seen such a large arc? Around capital and venture, and, and recently raised, and recently been running a startup and looking at evaluating kind of other founders. Do you think it is at an inflection point? And and if so, what do you think that inflection point is? I, if it if it is or not, I don't know. But should it be? Yes, I think it should. And the way you describe and and you know categorize it as um, venture, you know. Invest in, in opportunities to um, reform and modernise, you know, other other sectors, and yet doesn't seem to apply the same kind of disciplines to its own its own sector is 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 fascinating because I think that's true. You know, it's so <coughs> excuse me, it's so um, so difficult. Um, Certainly, from the founder's perspective, and I imagine also from the investor's perspective, you know, to see the wood for the trees, because partly because of the size and volume, and also because of the lack of the lack of tools to you know sift and sort and um, manage a pipeline of of opportunities. Um, so yeah, I, I think it. I think it should be at the point of inflection. Whether it is, I, d- I don't know. <laughs> um, do you, do you think it's there are still the same asymmetries that were that twenty years ago? You know, when it was the old boys in the club. Do you still think that that exists, particularly when you kind of head out of London into the regions and kind of into communities that have previously been sort of underserved with capital? So female founders is an obvious one. Do you Have you had experience of that? You feel free to say no. This, these aren't just loaded questions. But Well, yeah. I think, and I haven't, I haven't seen this firsthand, but you, know, you kind of hear, hear anecdotal um, stories um, about this. But I think there is, there's definitely a benefit, put it that way, of having some connection into, you know, into some you know, investors, um, whether they're individuals or whether they're institutional investors. And that 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 can only help. Um, I think there's a difficulty for many founders that don't have that um, that network, 
um, for, a ver- for a variety of different reasons, whether that's geographical or whether that's you know, other, other kind of demographic um, characteristics. Um, you know, I'd even, I'd even I, I harbour a suspicion that there's, there's a difficulty for, you know, an older founder yeah. um, not fitting, you know, the kind of the typical yeah. um, criteria of a you know, young um, kind of genius who's got this great idea. Um, and there are young geniuses out there with great ideas, of course. But you know, I think I think there is some there's a difficulty in terms of some perceptions. Having relationships will allow you to circumvent some of that, and I, I see anecdotal um, evidence of of that kind of taking place in a way which you know sometimes kind of runs contrary to the you know some of the criteria that sometimes you know get kind of tabled around traction or um, you know other other measures that are used to identify you know a, a, a startup being not fit for a particular investor and yet you then see you know an example where actually something has been invested in by that investor uh, and they they do seem to kind of well, they do fit some of the criteria but not all of them um, didn't explain that very well, did I? But um, so I think I think there are difficulties. Um, I hear a lot about you know the the um, issue of kind of the London centric um, myopia and then the opportunities in the regions being missed. Um, I'm not sure about that one because you know we live in an age there where you know, we used to dealing with people that aren't necessarily within your local area. And a lot of what we argue you know, within ISME and Co is you shouldn't be you know, restricted. You shouldn't restrict your ambitions or you know, your your options just by your local environment. You know, the world's the world's kind of moved past that, I think. Um, so I don't see I don't see why a business such as ours, which is virtual, but if you were to give it a geographic home, it's probably the northwest of England. I don't see why that should be an issue for an investor based in London if you know they're attracted by what we're doing and you know see a great market opportunity, a good man- a good management team and you know a, a really good kind of proposition. Um, so yeah. I'm not sure about the regional one, but yes, I, I'm, I haven't experienced it myself, but I sense there's there are those issues there. Let, let me let me make it sort of site specific and say if. Um, I'm not saying I'm not implying at all that you're you're going to do it, but let's say that Ismail and Co. Someone approached you and said we'd actually attach like to attach a fund to what you're doing, like because you're going to you're going to start to surface interesting businesses, you know, and be in those conversations. How would you? And I appreciate putting you on the spot, but how would you begin to structure that fund? And how would you how do you think you would identify? Those businesses, and let me put another sort of switch deck idea on it. That this, which I think you know, Propelia is sort of a proponent of this. That you know, would you value founder market fit? You know, like would you win if if you had that fund? If it's me and Co had a had a fund attached to it, would you um, sort of build it and value the lens around founder market, which is you know, is this the right founder fixing the right problem in the right way at the right time? So that it, it, maybe you've had that conversation, but um, 
if that were the case, like, yeah, it'd be interesting to know how, how you go about it, considering you are, you are a business, you are a platform that's going to see many, 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 many types of businesses in their, particularly in their early stages. So you will get visibility of kind of deal flow in an interesting way. Well, I mean, probably the first thing to say is I don't, I don't really see myself as qualified to run a fund, but set that to one side. Would I be any good at it? Not sure. Right. Um, but but it's a good question. You know how 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 would you identify value? Yeah. Um, and would would I look to employ some of the kind of conventional metrics that you you hear about, which are you know kind of monthly recurring revenue and you know the other kind of traction uh, metrics, which are which are talked about. The, the issue with those is, of course, that you know you you have to have reached a certain point in your development life cycle to start to you know, generate that that kind of proof, if you like, in terms of product market fit. The the question of founder market fit, I actually think is 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 really interesting because that is a much better test earlier in the life cycle. And for those for those individuals who have identified um, and I'm not going to say what they think, but let's say it is you know, a real significant venture scale opportunity in a particular market with a particular proposition, but they haven't, they don't have access to the either the bootstrap funding or the early kind of pre-seed funding to actually get that thing to the next stage. What a massive missed opportunity that is. Yeah. Because they could just die trying or, or not even try because you know they're not in a position where they can commit the time and the effort that's needed to do it without some external funding. So you know, the ability for you know professional investors to identify those opportunities, I'm not sure how much that exists today, probably not a lot. Because the default seems to be a snap towards monthly recurring revenue or other traction measures, um, which those earlier businesses won't have yet. And in my in my limited experience, so we're we're fundraising at the moment for Ismi and Co. So we're looking to raise funds to go to the next the next stage, and we've spoken to angels, individual angels, angel groups, and then VC funds. And one observation I have is how the angels seem to be kind of moving closer and closer up towards the VC kind of level of investing and the point at which you'd expect you would expect VCs to be kind of coming in and investing in businesses as it stands at the moment. Um, they seem to have kind of closed up. And and the and the angels have kind of vacated that earlier, very early stage, you know, with the where founder market fit is is much more important. And so, and I, I don't know if that's something which other people have seen as well. I don't know if you've seen like that, but yeah, you know, it, it seems it seems to be making the problem more and more acute, or the opportunity being missed more, because people are kind of looking away from that point. Now, whether it's because it's too difficult or because there aren't the tools to do it, I don't know. Whereas, 
you know, MRR is kind of an easy thing to measure and, yeah. you know, subscriber numbers or, you know, it's, it's almost not lazy, but, you know, it, it's, I, I personally, I think it's a massive missed opportunity. And, you know, I think for a little, for, you know, six or more months now, I think we've had enough as a business, as me and co, to say, look, here's, here's something that we, that's got real potential. Who wants to kind of come in and back this? Here's what we've done. You know, and there's, and there's plenty of kind of data to support our you know, proposition, but it's not easily communicated in the through the channels which are now kind of established. So I know you talk a lot about pitch decks. Very difficult to kind of get that those softer side of things across, and the importance of the founder in that, you know, in that um, in that recipe. Very difficult to communicate that, um, and it and it doesn't seem to fit well with the kind of the angel groups and the VC communities as it stands. So, what, so we're 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 trying to play the game at the moment. You know, we're trying to get to the point where yeah. we've got those MRR figures and we've got. So we're we're not you know we're, we're not distorting the business, but I think we're 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 missing an opportunity because we can't go further faster down a particular route. There's there's several several thoughts there um so i'm assuming that you've got some like killer stats on like you know sme businesses in particular and, and the growth of them and all those i saw some yesterday actually um and one of the interesting things that's come up which i think i'd specifically like to talk to you about which isn't directly in the, in the switch tech but it's come up in, in the last couple of weeks um so it needs to conversations in the new year um is that if you take the let's just take the uk but i think you can actually kind of scale this idea across globally right let's say that at the moment in the uk there's a million people uh, wanting to start or, or in the process of starting an early stage business i, I I'm, I'm not sure that number is correct please correct me if you have that number to hand whatever that whatever that number is let's just say x let's call it x is is it's probably pretty close, Dan. You know, it, it's, if it's not a million, it's close to it, I would say. Yeah. So what you've got is actually that's not a real number, right? So if, in the sense that there is so much untapped potential just below the surface of people that if they could access the right tools and capital, particularly driven by their founder market. So let's just say I always go to sort of someone in rural Scotland, like, like Jenny in rural Scotland, who's, you know, been a nurse for 15 years and has noticed something in med tech and has this, you know, has been honing it for five years and is just right on the verge of unlocking something, just needs, you know, six months worth of runway. That person who's in a deep vertical, um, there, there, there are less and less kind of horizontal um, B2B, SaaS, e-commerce, which is the, and the, the future actually is in these deep verticals and these individuals. If you can unlock capital so it can find Jenny in the same way, like as I, I use the analogy, like an Airbnb, if she ran a guest house before, before Airbnb, it was very hard for her to you know, unlock the potential of that guest house with a wide audience. But now people who can obviously search for Scotland, put all the filters on and find, you know, there's suddenly there's four people in any given week looking at her guest house. The point being is, is that I don't think we're looking at the potential of entrepreneurialism or, or founder or start, whatever you want to call it, in the right way. I actually think there's a whole through line to our whole conversation. So because a lot of the principles have been anchored 20 years ago, 25 years ago, of the way venture looks at opportunity. And, and I think this is where it is being co-played straight into this. There is actually this latent capacity. Um, 
if you think about the sharing economy, sorry, this is, this is a riff that is going to go somewhere. Think about the sharing economy. One of the key concepts of the sharing economy that I was around when it kind of came about was the concept of idling capacity. So your car sat idle for 23 hours a day. Your spare room sat idle for, you know, whatever, 48 weeks of the year. You know, and, and, and the, the businesses that did really, really well unlocked that idling capacity. So Uber is unlocking that idling capacity in someone's car. Airbnb is unlocking the idling capacity um, in someone's spare room, um, which then grows the economy and grows, you know, it eats, obviously eats uh, an existing business, but it grows the, the sector even wider. Even Deliveroo, you can say it's like, you know, it's the idling capacity of people sitting around with bikes who can, you want to earn a bit more cash. And they grow the, sec they grow the sector of um, food delivery in doing so. I think that we're not looking properly at entrepreneurialism, particularly post-pandemic, where, as you refer, you know, people working in different ways. I think there is this enormous untapped opportunity that VCs and angels haven't even begun to uh, un touch in, the, in many ways because they don't know quite how to evaluate it to what you were saying before. And that if we can give it, and I think this is the purpose of Founder Tech, a new ecosystem, we're not just going to kind of help and incrementally sort of accelerate the current market size we will massively grow it unlock it whatever that number is whatever x turns into y it turns into z over let's say the next 10 15 years who knows but i just think that people aren't looking at the market opportunity properly and because you're so sort of i guess vested in that space i'd love to have your your view on that on that riff on that kind of supposition that's starting to creep into the way we're looking at things with black box and, and the launch of that, like what is actually in the capacity of this if you can unlock it, unlock it, equivalent to unlocking the idling capacity, you know, in the, the sharing economy did really well. End of riff. <laughs> I love you. So, so it's a great, it's a great riff. So a couple of thoughts. Um, start with the kind of the small business economy, you know, just generally. I think there's a massive opportunity there in terms of unlocking potential for businesses across the UK to do more. Um, and that's around access to good information, access to the right advice. Um, and if you're selling into that market, you know, access to, to good quality prospects and not have to waste time and money looking for stuff. So I think, I think generally that you have know, small business community and that that's at the, the core of the Ismian co-proposition, of course. Yeah. But your question around the, yeah, the startup um, subsector within within small business, and it does come a little bit off the back of recent years. You know, and the stuff in the media isn't there about the great resignation and yeah. people taking stock, you know, personally in terms of what do they want to do, um, a, a change in realization about what can be done um, remotely. You know, not having to you know work for the man or woman by trekking into some big corporate and you know, nine to five jobs. So I think I think there's definitely there's definitely a um, a move towards seeing more people want to do that. In terms of funding and people you know being able to kind of take the plunge and say, well look, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you know being employed and I'm gonna start my own business up, whatever that is, whether it's Jenny in Scotland or whoever or whatever. Um, there are there are things out there which purport to you know support that you know that kind of innovative community. Um, so the British Business Bank startup loans. Yeah. The 
the problem with these schemes that, that exist at the moment and these innovation grants and, and what have you, the, the, the problem is you a lot of the support that's made available, particularly down government routes, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a soapbox of mine, but I think it's relevant to the, to the question because it's, it, it, confirm, it confirms a need, I think, and it then helps you know, reinforce a problem and then there's an opportunity then for the funders which arises from that, I think. The, the, there is a, and I, I, I can't quite get my head around this, there's a real irony between government intervention the default seems to be we'll set up local enterprise partnerships or local business hubs, growth hubs, which are all kind of locally, regionally based. I actually see that as counterproductive. I don't think that helps with the kind of levelling up agenda. I think all it does is it, it almost kind of cements and reinforces the kind of local myopic focus of business communities. Instead of saying, actually, this is you know, UK PLC or the world. You know, even, even more importantly for many businesses, you know, they can trade across borders are much more easily and certainly more easily than you know when I you know started out in business. So I think I think the kind of government intervention is 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 um isn't really solving the problem. And then when you get to the kind of the business um, startup loan scheme, it, <laughs> it's slightly perverse. If if your if your ambition is fairly limited. And you can identify that with the benefit of the startup loan and whatever other funding you kind of you know pull together yourself, that's enough. It's sufficient for your business to get up and running. Then you're off. So if Jenny had a fairly modest ambition, that may well you know suit, and you know those existing schemes may be sufficient for her to to do what she wants to do. If Jenny's ambition is is larger than that if the opportunity she's identified is much more significant you don't qualify or jenny wouldn't qualify for a startup loan because she developed a business plan which said look we do this they would do this and then this is where i'm going if this is where i'm going then requires additional further funding at some point in the future she then disqualified from a business startup loan so it kind of it helps with micro business initiatives but anything that could then have a you know, much more significant impact and a much greater contribution to the economy there's a gap you know and then there's the gap then starts between there the end of the kind of business startup loans and the angel or well, family and friends then the angels then vcs then private equity public markets and so on there's a there's a chasm there to borrow a phrase from one of the textbooks so i think I think it is an issue, and there's a way of solving it by shining a light on opportunities like the one that Jenny's producing. Then, wouldn't wouldn't that be great? I, if people I, could see yeah, see that. I, I think we and, and evaluate it, yeah, whatever whatever yeah. the way of evaluating, you know, Jenny in a, in a business proposition. How do you do that? And and it's down to how how good Jenny is, isn't it? And her understanding of the market and yeah, and her ability, you know, and vision. You know how 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 do you how do you convey that? How do you make how do you make her visible to people, and then how do they assess her? Well, I'm giving it a crack. Um, I, no, I, I, think, I, I, I think I know. I think it's a leading. Yeah. It's a leading. No, 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 I know, I know. We, we, I think I, I'm increasingly confident that we 
solve that and I'm excited to sort of show how Jenny gets visible very quickly and finds the three, four people that you know, want to back that problem. Um, but want to sort of close, just to circle back to Ismi and Co, um, what I find fascinating is that you're counteracting what I think is a trend. And I'm wondering whether you're aware of this and whether you were amazed when, when, when you met your partner, um, Will, co-founder Will, um, yeah. the, th the, the trend that we've been seeing and the pattern that we've been seeing, and it's in the switch deck, is that there is actually a diminishment of sort of like broad B2B opportunities, you know, like a particularly kind of SaaS platform driven, that, that those kind of low hanging fruit, and I mean that in the sense of like there is a distinct market gap that can be attacked that is broad. In, and I kind of call that a horizontal opportunity. They, there seems to be less and less of those, but what you're doing seems to land straight, you know, almost like uh, the opportunities of sort of 10 years ago in tech where you could kind of be in a pitch deck, go, oh, wow, that's somebody's addressed a really large market, um, that, you know, that we can see how you've attacked that. But, but, but we're, my experience is that there are less and less of those plays, and there's certainly less and less of them sort of sitting in investor funnels coming in via pitch decks. Were you amazed to find that the terrain that you're navigating um, with Ismi and Co was sort of available to even tackle? I mean, I would, I would have been, but I'd love to kind of get when you and Will sort of circling in on it and going, yeah, actually, the more you're, I, I'm assuming you did all your sort of research and due diligence as you've alluded to, were you amazed that that was still there and that there wasn't somebody already with their flag in the ground? Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when, we, when we sat there, we, we, we were chatting about it right back at the start. You know, we sat you know, having a cup of tea, just kind of mulling it over, and we thought, well, there must be something. That's what I'm there imagining, must yeah. There must, yeah. There must be somebody yeah. out there. Yeah. So before before we spend much more time on it, let's go and have a look. So, so we did. There are people doing bits of it. So there are, yeah, there are publishers producing business information typically written by copywriters, not by experts themselves. So people have gone and Googled a subject and then produced an article, which is written specifically, you know, it's clickbait, so it's, it's written you know, with the primary objective of you know, being SEO um, um, friendly. So there's, there's business information stuff out there. There are um, brokers who deal in narrow verticals. So if you want to find yourself a digital marketing agency, there's a broker who'll you know, help you look for the right digital marketing agency. Um, there are networks, obviously, in person and online. A lot of the online ones are you know, increasingly social and you know, not the kind of place that people would openly debate um, you know, small small business um, um, aspects. Um, and yet there are good examples you know, in the technical space you know, of communities where people you know, share ideas and information and advice and recommendations. There's there's one that you know in the in the founder space, you know, where people you know share experiences and thoughts yeah. on you know yeah. um, investors. So yeah, there are communities out there, but not not for the kind of owners and managers of, of small businesses. So yeah, there's there's bits out there, but nobody's doing it in a comprehensive way. There's there's also kind of the <clears throat> what used to be the the local kind of business network groups, which which tended to be in person. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of those have kind of moved online, but it's not digital first. And there's nobody doing it in a comprehensive way. So, yes, we were surprised. And 
then as we kind of looked further and, and, and deeper and started to then consider you know, what now exists within the consumer B2C space, you know, then again, surprised that nobody had thought to kind of bring that to the business services industry. So it's, we are, you know, we are aware that we hold contrarian views. You know, a lot of the kind of cross of the chasm wisdom would be start with a you know, small beachhead and then kind of build out. And that's been kind of played back to us. Not not that often, but on occasion. Um, the reason we we believe that the broader, you know, cross industry um, solution is the answer because of the value it adds to both the buyers and, and the sellers. Because most of the sellers are going to be small businesses who themselves are going to be needing to you know, consume content and information about functional things, which they're not experts in, um, and then hire resource and help um, to further their own business interests. So from the buyer side, there's value in it being kind of you know, multidisciplinary. And from the, from the buyer side, it's, it's obvious, isn't it, you know, that the richer the content and we quote an example, which is um, hybrid working. So you're you're a business that you're quite topical, a business that has increasingly less staff in the office and more people working remotely. You may realise, or you may get to the point where you think, I need to take some advice on updating the terms and conditions of employment for those staff because you know the dynamics have changed, and, and I need to I need to update it. What you might not have considered are the insurance implications or the data security and systems implications. Whereas, you know, with a digital platform that has all of those aspects within it, and with all of the tools that now exist within the B2C space, we can tailor the user experience so it knows the basic profile information about your business, so it knows kind of what you are and what you do, and what stage you're at, so what things you're likely to be interested in. And then based on your behavior and also the behavior of the people using the system, it can also then serve related content. So if you're looking for you know, information on employee T's and C's, it can also serve you something that you might not have thought of yet. Now, this massive value, which doesn't exist you know, elsewhere at the moment. And that's, that's why we're kind of holding to that contrarian belief that Yes, we could go and build something in a very narrow vertical, but we don't think that's going to deliver the value which will then propel this thing forward, you know, in a way that we think it it should and could be propelled forward to establish, you know, the the centre ground, you know, and for us to be the the one that redefines the market and then has a defensible position that we then create. So that that's why we're kind of holding that view. But yes, we were surprised. And <laughs> yes, I know that we're running slightly, slightly against the grain in terms of certainly some of the conventional wisdom. Yeah, no, I, I had, I had imagined you and we were having that cup of, exactly that cup of tea and same conclusions. Um, I'm just aware, aware of time. Is there? I mean, you've, you've given a good description there of, of, of what the platform is and does and where you're going. Is there anything that you'd explicitly? like to ask anything about the next round, anything in terms of skills, if you're a business listening to this, you're a founder, do you want to just go do the wrap up, the, the floor that is yours to sort of say, say what is the is top of mind? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I mean, we, we are fundraising at the moment. So, you know, it's an, an EIS qualifying round. We're looking to raise 600,000. Um, it's live on UK Angel Investment Network. 
um, platform and also the connected platform. Anybody who's interested, anyone likes kind of what they've heard about, you know, what I've, what I've described, love to have a chat. Um, you know, reach reach out via the website or you'll find me on LinkedIn, Tim Whiston. I've got one of those kind of slightly unusual names. Um, so I'm easy to find with a, with a, a John, a John Smith. Um, so yeah, reach out to me. Love to talk to you um, from an investment point of view, but also businesses. You know, businesses who, who, who believe that there's, or, or like the sound of doing things differently, and not kind of you know, falling into the trap of the conventional marketeers' wisdom, which is you know spend more on digital advertising, spend more, spend more on SEO investments. If you want to do something different, and join a community, a growing community of businesses who are you know, serious about doing great things together. Then yeah, we'd love. We'd love to have you join, join ISME and Care, whether that's as a user looking for information and wanting to extend the network or as a provider who's looking to kind of you know, meet well-informed, motivated prospects. Um, love, love to talk to you in, uh, in that context as well and tell you more about it. Great. Well, we'll put obviously in the notes how, how to get in contact with you. Um, and I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good way to wrap up. Thank you for sort of soldiering on post-COVID. Um, so if I could hear can hear and the bark yes uh, it, sorry sorry for coughing no no, 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 no <laughs> caught most of those so that, that that's all good um yeah really really interesting i do i this is nothing but an inkling i do think there is whether you run the fund or something or something else i think there is there is a the way capital is moving where it's trying to get you know into smaller vertical scalable niches as it's called there may be someone who hears about what you're doing and thinks actually tim might have a whole bunch of these that we can plug into um you know um which is really which is really interesting or, or not to be to be to be explored or not but my instinct is is that the, the what you the marketplace that you're creating has has that value in identifying things in an interesting state. And like I said, the unlocking of this new capacity, entrepreneurial capacity, I think we're just at the beginnings of that conversation. So um, yes, yeah, so Tim, thanks very much for your time and sharing the story being so open. Um, I really, really appreciate it. That has been great. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thanks.